Hey, we've mentioned the war a couple of times. It reminds me of a line uh, out of uh, Faulty Towers, another British comedy. I don't know if you've watched it where uh, Basil Faulty can't help mentioning the war. <laughs> and he's always doing it, always tripping himself up. Well, I'm going to mention the war again. Okay, the VE Day, Victory in Europe. So the 8th of May, there it was, it was plastered all over newspapers across the world. The 8th of May, 1945, Nazi Germany surrenders unconditionally to Allied forces. The news obviously got over in Australia late. Uh, so it was way in the afternoon, 4.30 on that Tuesday, news began to spread throughout the country, and particularly in Sydney, celebrations, not that I was there, this is what I've read, and people were throwing out uh, paper out the office windows. And the place was littered, apparently, with celebrations of the end of war. By 11pm in King's Cross, King's Cross, Sydney, they had 15,000 people kissing and chanting and doing everything else and just reveling that it was the end of the war. Victory in Europe Day. And it's celebrated still today. I don't know how big it is. How big is it in, in Oz? Still pretty big here? I mean, it's a huge thing back in the UK and in many other parts of the world. And I'll tell you that because it just lays some of the background for what we're doing today. We're going to conclude, finally, I don't know how many we've had. It might, oh, thanks, Nikki. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot. Well, the Bible is a big book, big book, you know, and Esther's a big book. All ten chapters, apart from the final chapter, obviously very brief. This is the final one, okay? The Persians are going after today. So if you haven't made acquaintance with the Persians, this is your last opportunity, okay? And we're going to conclude today, and hopefully God willing, begin Philippians next week. So look, it's 5th century Persia. The Jews have just won a decisive victory over their enemies. The enemies, particularly, it's Haman and his family. This is a family is associated with what's going on here. He has been defeated. His desire to annihilate the Jews has come to nothing. And it's him, Haman, along with his family that are humiliated, defeated, it's horrible to imagine, impaled and paraded before the people. And as a consequence of that, we have established in Jewish, in Jewish culture uh, a new festival, a new feast called Purim. And I want to look at that with you today. And here's a question we're asking. We're in the Old Testament. We're Christians. Uh, by and large, our lives are established on what Jesus is saying through his apostles. So we're asking, what has this historic event, this victory and the consequent uh, establishment of this feast, what does that do for us? What does that tell us? And it's a question we've got to ask, you know, why are we reading Esther? And why are we going to spend a whole, well, a couple of hours on this last sermon? Well, Lena, you know, I've got to get everything in, okay? You know, why? What? And, and if you notice, the end of the book, chapter 9, right through to 10, instead of going on about something really exciting, it's all about the details of Purim, how he established it and what he did. And you're asking yourself, why is so much ink spilt on giving us the establishment of this feast? What does it tell me as a Christian? What relevance is that to my life? I'm struggling, I go, why is everywhere? And, and so 
that's what we're asking. Let me throw it out. What is the significance and why are we bothered about it? Why am I going to speak about it? This morning, Purim. Oh yeah, that's a good answer. You can't go wrong there, can you? You know, it's in the Bible. How is it relevant to me as a Christian? What do I care about Purim? Pardon? He does. He cares for his children, Jerry. Thank you. And and look, that on on the line, some of what we're going to say. Look, I want to give you a clue. And here's the heading. Trouble with headings, I use headings all the time. It just quantifies where we're going. The heading's going to give away the answer. Here it is. What's the significance of Purim? You've got to turn your head to the side and upright. What's the significance of Purim? Here. It reminds us, it sets the tone for our celebration of our Purim. You get that? It sets the tone for our celebration of our Purim. What is our Purim? What is the great victory that we have entered into and enjoy and revel in and celebrate? Jesus, yep, and? And his victory over death. That's what we celebrate in our Purim celebration. And specifically at the centre of our Purim is what? Yes, amen, thank you, Steph. We did it last week. At the centre of our Purim, the way we do it as a central figure regularly, not just annually, is... You've got to talk to me, it's going to last a long, long time. Communion, thank you. That's the high point of our Purim celebration. Let's, let's get there. Look, that's the answer. You can leave now, because you're going to get this weird guy with his weird accent for the next 30 minutes. Okay? Or, or if you want some detail, hang in there. Okay? Hang in there. Let's turn to the passage. So, celebrate Jesus is where we're going. Our subheading is the remembrance of Jesus' victory is to forever be at the heart of Christian worship. Hey, someone asked me recently, why do you have that cross in your church? Here's one, here's one. So, verse 17, we're going to just go back a little bit, a couple of verses beyond what Pam read so beautifully there, Pam, thank you. Verse 17, this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. If you remember, in the capital, there was, look, you're familiar with these terminology now. I mean, boy, you know the amazing thing about COVID is that it's made experts of everybody. Whoever I talked to, <laughs> I find it hilarious, is an expert on COVID. Really, I don't know where they study, but they are. Okay, here's the thing. So, so we're, we're familiar with all these terminology waves. Okay, in Susa they had a second COVID, a second wave. It wasn't enough on the first one to 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 annihilate the the enemies of the Jews. They had a second go at it, a second wave. 
And so because of that, there's, there's this establishment of the ones in the city have it on one day and the ones in rural areas have it on the other. 13th of the lunar month of Adar falls between February and March. There's obviously discrepancy because of where the moon is. And so verse 19, that is why the rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. And so they began to celebrate. They rested. Obviously rested from, yeah, fighting. They had to defend their lives and their property. And they gave gifts. I guess, uh, I don't know, what do you give gifts? Yeah, goodwill. You know, you want to share? I mean, this is celebration that they rested. They gave gifts to each other. And so what was a spontaneous reaction? No one like says, oh, Let's have a celebration. <laughs> you know, hey, we'll start giving gifts. No, they just did it. And so what became, what was rather spontaneous, became ingrained. Listen to this. Mordecai recorded these events and he, set, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th, because of the discrepancy, because of the second wave of the month of Adar, February to March, as the same as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them, in, he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Can you see what Mordecai is doing? He's taking this great event. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, how many of the Jews were in danger from Haman? All of them. Okay. It affects everyone. And he takes this and he sets it in a forever memory of the Jews. Look at verse 27. The Jews took it upon themselves, therefore, to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed by Mordecai and at the appointed time. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, in every city, and these days of Purim shall never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor shall the memory of them die out among their descendants. Do you know, it's two and a half thousand years on, does anyone celebrate Purim? Yeah, they do, don't they, Pip? Still today, what Mordecai ingrained has been established, and to this day, do you know, on every Purim, Jews go to synagogues and they read out aloud the whole book of Esther, in a pantomime style. You ever been to a pantomime? Pantomime? Are they popular here? Yeah? Okay. So you know what, you know what happens? So you've got the chief characters, Mordecai, Esther, Haman. Whenever Mordecai comes on stage, what do people do? Yeah! yeah! Really? And then whenever Haman comes on stage? Boo! Really? It's like that. And, and yeah, you've got it. And the whole thing is dramatized, brought to life. They give gifts of money and food and they celebrate every year that's what purity means that's what Jews are doing and it all comes back to this pivotal celebration 
spontaneous celebration of the Jews' victory over their enemies. When the nation, when every Jew in the world had a second chance at life. I, mean, I was talking to someone last week who's had a second chance at life and they were telling me how they enjoy every day. Every day is a celebration. These guys have had a second chance at life and at least annually there's joy. So here's the question. So what? <laughs> I'm a Christian. So what? What is his significance? Where is Jesus in this? Why is it in the Bible? I mean, God's a busy guy. Why has he put it there? What do I do with it? How does he speak about Jesus? Jesus took on Haman. We know that, don't we? Who is Haman? Who is Haman a physical manifestation of? Sin. Yes, sin has the effect and sin has as his the devil. Satan and sin, the, the SS, if you want to use more terminology. Satan and sin. Jesus takes us. So in the book of Esther, if Haman is a physical manifestation of the devil and he is, who is the physical manifestation of Jesus? Because Jesus is in every page of the Bible. He is in all of his chief leading heroes. He is the hero in every case. He is Joseph. You know that, don't you? The Joseph is a picture of Joseph, just like Jesus, was betrayed by his brothers. He went on and, and did a great exploit for his people. So who is the physical manifestation, the, 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 the theodicy, if you like? It is. I know this book is entitled Esther. But the real hero, I mean, who, who, who was behind Esther? Who, who propped it up? Who, who, who gave it momentum? It was Mordecai. Who is the hero now? Who are people responding to? Who instigates the battle? Who leads the people? Who is writing this, this, this purim into the minds of people's lives? It's Mordecai is the Jesus character in the book of Esther. And so we're asking then, what do we do with it? Can you see that this victory and purim that followed sets the tone, sets typologically an example of what we are to do with our great victory. We did this bit of this a couple of weeks ago, so here's a refresher. The battle that Haman, uh, that the Jews go um, against the Haman and his allies, that battle is a microcosm of the battle that Jesus does for us. Just as the Jews take on Satan and the enemy of God, so Jesus takes on our enemy, which is sin. But the battle arena, remember, hey, who is Jesus going up against? We did this, I think, a fortnight ago. He's got the battle arena. Okay, let me ask, what's the arena that Jesus is battling in? The physical, where do we see? What is the arena where Jesus' battle takes place? It's the cross, thank you. Who is he up against? 
Now think about this very carefully. Who is he up against? Yeah, think about it. I won't embarrass you even if you say something. Yes, Pippa. That's why I said think about it. Who is Jesus going up against? We just had the answer. Thanks, Stephanie. It is, it is partly right. But he's going up against God. Who's the edict? The edict of death that's on all humanity. Who issued that? God. Okay. Whose justice does Jesus satisfy? Whose who's mercy seat or... Hey, my mind's gone blank. Where you offer sacrifices. What is that thing called? Altar, thank you, Greg. Uh, whose altar is the cross? God set it up. Who does Jesus offer himself to? God. Whose wrath does he satisfy? God. We have to understand here that this whole thing is towards God. It's he who is a party that is, that is at odds. It's Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, says God. So Jesus is up against God. He goes and faces God's justice. It's God's altar that he enters. It's towards God. Who are all sacrifices in the Old Testament directed towards God? What were they? Generally, they were lambs. What is Jesus? John 1. The Lamb of God. So he has been offered towards his Father. It's Romans 23. I haven't got the verse up there, Greg, but it's Romans 23. God put forth Jesus as a propitiation through his blood to satisfied, satisfy God's wrath. Here's something we don't like to hear. And this isn't vogue. But Jesus satisfies God's wrath. It's God's wrath that is appeased. I know that's not in vogue. No one likes to think of God like that. We like to think of him like some kind of Father Christmas with a big cuddly belly and lovely squiggly beard in a red suit or whatever colour prefers. There was a time when God was at odds with the human race and his wrath expressed. And so when Jesus goes on that cross, he takes upon himself in this battle the full fury of God towards the sins of his people. It's what he does. It's, it's, in Romans 4, 25, he was delivered over to death for, and here's the thing, the sins that he suffers for is our sins. He takes it upon himself. God made him, Jesus we're told, who was of no sin to be, there's no verse for this, Greg, to be sin for us he became me with all that ugliness oh, and here's the thing he became me with all my ugliness 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 of sin before my conversion and and after how long for how far ahead Lee? till tomorrow next week till I'm 24 next year He took the wrath for every sin, past, present, 
and future. He was delivered for all our sins. It's why, it's why. Now we can't keep saying this. It's not a license for sin, but Romans 8, 1 stands true. It's not there, Greg. And it, it's, it's lasting. What is Romans 8, 1? If you know one verse of the Bible beyond John three sixteen, you have to know Romans 8, 1. For there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because Jesus died not just for all my sins before I believed in him not just before all my sins before I became a minister but all my sins for all time world without end and so it's the greatest ever victory the greatest ever victory it changed everything forever it changed everything. And, and in the cross and that term and that instrument there, when we mention it, you know, we just, it's a passing thing, the cross. Do you know it's the most complex piece of theological truth in all of the Bible? It's incredibly complex. And it looks simple, two pieces of wood. And yet, it's the most complex thing in in all of eternity, if you like. And here, let me give you some examples. One of the things you do at Bible college, it's crazy, I know. You pay thousands of dollars, okay, to go, right? And sometimes you spend months, weeks reading books and engaging with authors over the most minute details of our faith. Seriously. Seriously. And, and, and we're engaging with people who spend their entire life on small elements of our faith. And do you know the cross? The cross has theologians to, to date bewildered by its complexity and its brilliance. Its complexity and its brilliance. It's full of paradoxes. Look, let me give you one paradox here. The devil was behind the cross. It was him who was, who was edging on the people. Have you ever seen The Passion? Mel Gibson's Passion? Now, you know, it's got its faults. It's made by humans, of course it has. But it captures some real powerful truths of the cross. Not least Jesus' suffering. But one element it captures really effectively in various scenes when Jesus has been scourged or, or, or people are against him, you see the manifestation of the devil, the, the guy with no hair, you see him in the scene sometimes. You remember that? He's just in the background. And, and what's that suggesting? When Jesus has been scourged and he's got the manifestation of the devil in the background, what's it suggesting? That the devil's behind this. And so he's saying, the devil is behind the cross. Acts 2.23, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. He's behind the cross and, and he influenced wicked men to carry out his plan. Now here's the paradox. The devil is behind the cross and the paradox is this. What is the paradox? So is God. Simultaneously, behind the cross. And so, Acts, the same verse, Acts 2, 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purposes and foreknowledge. God established the cross. He satisfies God's wrath against sin. He satisfies his desire to have mercy. He brings his people back onto him. And so the cross ultimately is the brainchild and ingenious of God. Of God. 
Let me show you some more stuff about the cross. It's a, the cross is a conspiracy between God the Father and God the Son. And we always use the word conspiracy in a negative term. I'm using it in a more positive. It's when two people collude or two groups collude together for a desired outcome. It tends to happen in today's world for all the negative things you can imagine. But here I want to show you that the cross is a collusion or conspiracy between the Son and the Father. Here, A. The cross is God's deepest love expressed towards us in giving his Son for us. For God so loved the world. Okay? So this is the, this is the conspiracy between Father and Son. The cross is an expression of God's deepest love towards his people. And it's simultaneously an expression of Jesus's love for his people. Do you see that? Because Jesus laid down his life for his friends as an act of love. So simultaneously, the two work together. Secondly, the cross is God's victory. Because God wins back his people. And it's simultaneously Jesus' victory in winning his bride. Remember, this is, this is a wooing act of Jesus. He woos his bride. What is the one thing that makes us love Jesus unconditionally? What is the one thing that drives on our love for Jesus what, what makes us love him? It's his victory for us. It's his love expressed on the cross for us. So it's God's victory in winning us back to himself. It's Jesus' victory in winning his bride. And thirdly, it's a conspiracy between the two. You know, the cross is God outwitting the devil and triumphing over him. And simultaneously, it's Jesus outwitting him and defeating him on the cross. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world is an act of God. John 10.18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. If you've ever encountered a book by a, a prominent member of the UK society where it was claimed that to suggest that God put his son to death is tantamount to cosmic child abuse. Have you heard that terminology before? Okay, it's absurd. It suggests that Jesus is a victim. What does Jesus say here? You see, that kind of language, that this is God abusing his son, suggests that Jesus is a victim. What does Jesus say in John 10, 18? No, this isn't Jesus. Against Jesus, against his will. What is Jesus' role in his father's desire for him to be crucified for the sins of the world? Jesus' response is, yeah, it's in Psalm 40, it's in Hebrews 10, when Jesus says, here I am, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus lays down his life for his church. I want you to remember that. This isn't God taking advantage of his son. It's a conspiracy between the two. Okay, they each contribute the part. They each hatch the plan. They're both complicit in it. They work together. The cross is a mystery in that it's not the father against the son, but it's the father and the son working in unison, in perfect harmony to accomplish salvation for you and me. And in some little sense, in, in Mordecai and Esther working together to bring this about, we see something of, of that first ripple 
of what Jesus and his, and his Father does together. So here's the thing. If you haven't worked it out by now, the cross is brilliant. Brilliant! Seriously. Let me, let me take you back to Mordecai. You see, when Haman established his, his first edict, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It had a fail-safe. The Persian kingdom was behind it. He knew, as the possessor of that ring, when he wrote that, in, with the seal of his ring, he knew, Haman knew, that no matter what happened to him, that that edict was established how long for? Forever. It was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant edict against humanity. And so when Mordecai and Esther defeated it shows the absolute brilliance of their plan and when we look at the cross you have to understand the, the situation humanity was in for the devil all all his ducks lined up perfectly he had us you see we're entrapped by Satan and sin God hates sin well, and here's the thing, uh, look, I don't know if you've ever worked this out, you know, when we talk to people about the gospel, you know, and we talk about Jesus dying for our sins, they may say something like, why doesn't God just forgive us? Let me ask that question. What, why the rigmarole of the cross? Why doesn't God just forgive us, Lee? Why doesn't he just say, okay, hey, hey I forgive you. No, he can't. You see, for God to be God, he cannot just forgive sins because sins are what? They're a breaking of his commands. And for God to be God and to be God to be judicially operate. Let me ask you, it's simple. Look, here's, a, here's a way of understanding this. In Australia, you have cops, police. They're always huge. And if you're little as me, it's always like, yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> okay? They're huge. If you get pulled over for, and okay, you get done for murderly. Okay? It's not, too, not so far fetched, is it? Okay? So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Road rage. <laughs> okay? Road rage and murder. Okay? You get, you get pulled up by a cop, and a cop comes up to you and says, hey, hey, Lee. And you're saying, oh, mate, I'm so sorry for killing this guy. I, I didn't mean it. It was, it, was an, it was an accident. I won't do it again. And the cop turns around and says, I tell you what, Lee, you know, you look like a nice guy, handsome and, you know, uh, grey but handsome. Uh, go on. I'll lay you off. What is that police officer doing when he does that? He's breaking the law. And he will get an incredibly hefty sentence. He has, you see, that police officer has no right or warrant, no ability whatsoever to forgive Lee and let him off the hook. Lee, has, in that scenario, has broken, broken the law and the law demands in every single case justice. We understand that, don't we? Okay, if that was your... Your mom, who here would be saying, I said, okay, Lee, I forgive you, just go away, don't do it again. Who would say that? When we sin against God and break his laws, his commands, he cannot, 
He cannot just say, it's okay, you're, you're forgiven. And this is why the cross is so, so brilliant. Because on that cross, we see unparalleled sophistication, intelligence, collaboration, and effectiveness, pure genius. Because what God does, and then he outwits the devil. Let me ask you, did the devil, when he put Jesus to the cross and had him crucified, was he aware that he was at that moment sowing the seeds of his own destruction? No. No. No one saw it. He didn't see it. You didn't see Stephen. I didn't see Stephen. No one saw it. But at that very moment, God's genius was coming through. Because although we were in, in a, in a catch-22 situation, God loved us, but had no ability and mechanism to forgive us just by saying, I forgive you, did something, not, not even the devil. Having been on the planet for hundreds of years, thousands maybe, foresaw. God stepped into our world and took upon himself all the sins of the world. The full gravity and the full weight of it. And God himself suffered and paid the full judicial sentence for the sins of the world and set you free. And he comes to your prison cell. He unlocks it and says, Go. Go. Can you see? It's brilliant, ingenious, and beautiful. And beautiful. And it's why, it's why he establishes it as a forever right of the church. Look, my time is running out. But, but here's what Jesus says. As the great and final Mordecai, it's in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul records it. And he says, Jesus, on the night there is a betrayed, like Mordecai, but ahead of the battle, establishes our purim. He says, take bread. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Can you see how purim and Esther 9 and 10 are encapsulating for us what will become the Feast of Feasts. It's the only ongoing feast of the New Testament church. It's why we don't do any other feasts. It's the only one that Jesus established that we should keep. And here's the significance of it. Let me ask you, how long, for how many years, how many generations, in time, for how long will we Keep remembering, rejoicing in and celebrating the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Stephanie. Always. And, and, and we're not just saying that because that's what makes sense. We're saying that because of Revelation 5.9. Listen to this. And this is in heaven. It's a picture of our future. Here's you singing, Steve. Okay, this is you. And, I, and they sang a new song. 
And this is what they'll be singing. This is what you and I and every other person who loves Jesus, whose sins are forgiven because they love Jesus. He goes, they were singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open his seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, language and people. What are we going to be doing in heaven? Amongst all the other wonderful things that we're going to do in heaven, what is the chief thing that we'll be doing in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever? On what basis? Praise and worship? Yes, praise and worship centred around worshipping a crucified Jesus Christ. We will never forget. Not even in eternity. What Jesus did for us. Never. Never. Now look, I've got to finish. Let me just wrap this up. Here's how we... We must never forget the cross... Here's how we don't forget the cross. So four practical points. Okay, number one, they're in ascending order of significance. Having reminders and inspire celebrating Jesus' cross is a good thing. Okay? Hey, to have a cross in a church. I know this is a school gymnasium, but it's not. Because wherever we go together in Jesus' name, we become... The church. This is our church. Wherever we go in worship of Jesus, this is church. And so it's a good thing to have a cross. If you want to wear the jewellery, it's a good thing. Some people I know are one of our former members. Lovely fella. Uh, Jim, he used to always carry one in his pocket. And every now and then, when he just needed a reminder, he'd put his hands in his pocket and feel the cross. And remind himself of Jesus' victory. Hey, let me ask you. After Jesus' death, who is the very first convert? Have a think about this one. Who's the very first Christian convert post-Jesus' death? Yes, Sid, the soldier. And how did that soldier come to faith? Listen to this. When the centurion, those with him who were God in Jesus... The cross. It's a good thing to carry, to wear, to establish the cross. So it's a good thing to have the secondly, singing worship songs that celebrate Jesus' cross is a good thing. I was speaking to somebody this week and I was explaining about the importance of songs that are Bible focused. You notice something about Living Word Church. That our songs are always Bible-focused. They're not just about what's trendy. We don't care about what's trendy. I mean, just look at me. I obviously don't care about what's trendy, do I? Okay? Okay? What we care about is biblical-centeredness. Our songs are biblically-centered. That's how they should be. Here's what Colossians 3.16 says. This is about singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, if our songs don't have the Bible, we can hardly... Follow Colossians 3.16. And so here's what it says. As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We're singing songs of gratitude. Gratitude for what? The cross. The cross. Hey, a good percentage of the songs that we sing in this song, in this church, must have what is their central focus? the cross. Thirdly, 
Preaching sermons that celebrate Jesus' cross is a good thing. What should you be hearing from whoever stands here? Really, if your pastor preacher rarely mentions the cross of Jesus, sack him! Seriously! Seriously, no preacher deserves to be called a preacher who doesn't preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember what Paul said? What did Paul say when he got to the Corinthians? These pagan people, just like me and you, just like Adelaide, okay? When he got to these pagan people, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except what a wonderful life Jesus is going to give you. I resolve to know nothing above you, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hey, it was Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from Great Britain, who said that whatever text the preacher is on, he must make a beeline for Jesus. And I want to add to that. He must make a beeline for Jesus and his cross. And the last one, I'll need to finish the last one. Partaking in communion regularly to celebrate Jesus' cross is a good thing. We've read it just, haven't we? When he had given thanks, he broke bread and says, this is my body broken for you, Christian. If you get to, if you only get to one service a month, if you only get to one, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but if you only get to one service a month, you get to the one at the beginning of the month. Okay? Jesus commands it. Next time we're debating in our minds, for no good reason, there may be good reason why we can't be in church, but the next time we debate, in, shall I go to church or shall I not? I don't really, I really can't decide. Shall I, shan't I? Who's playing? Next time you do that, Jesus commands it. Jesus commands it. Do this in remembrance. I mean, not that anybody here does that, Stephen. I'm just kidding, Stephen. <laughs> hey, Purim is all about the celebration of our victory in Jesus. Let's revel in it. Let's revel in our captain, Mordecai, Jesus, and let's revel in the Purim, the cross and its remembrance, communion that Jesus established. And that's the book of Esther. Amen.